Well, good morning. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. Ruth is one of the most beloved books in the Bible, and um, we find it right after the book of Judges in our... um, in our versions of the Bible. And since we spent most of uh, 2023 uh, completing a study in the book of Judges, it seemed like uh, good to just go on to Ruth, which is actually set during the period of the Judges. So Lord willing, we'll spend about six weeks looking at this book. I did preach through this book back in 2010. Um, So we'll see what's changed in the last 14 years. Certainly, I have changed, I know that's for sure. Uh, God's word, though, doesn't change. One of the things that's interesting is in the Hebrew version of the Bible, the book of Ruth is in the wisdom literature, and uh, it falls after the book of Proverbs. Uh, In our Bibles, which are uh, taken from the the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, Ruth has been moved into the what was called the former prophets uh, with the historical books following right after Judges. So, Judges deals with uh, great leaders and uh, daring deeds, uh, great sin and great uh, challenges, and Ruth deals with uh, ordinary people. And so uh, that's one of the reasons it's so much beloved and I think uh, so relevant to us. So let's read. We're just going to look at verses 1 to 7 as we begin this book. This is the word of God. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless us as we think about this scripture together. Well, last fall, there was a story that made international news about the world's loneliest sheep. Uh, You can guess where the world's loneliest sheep was living, but it was a sheep uh, up in the northeast coast of Scotland that had managed to find its way or fall down. Nobody really knows how it got there, down the sea cliff so that it was uh, by the shore in this very remote part of the coast, and the only reason anyone even knew that the sheep was there was because some kayakers had gone by and seen the sheep. And uh, they thought, well, that's interesting. How did the sheep get there? There's no way to get the sheep off of there. And uh, 
what was real, when, when this really became an international story was when the, the kayakers came by two years later, that was this fall, and there was that sheep still there living uh, by itself. Uh, only two years of not getting uh, your, your wool shorn, children, means that the wool had grown all the way down to the ground and the sheep was tottering around with all this extra wool on it and it just looked so forlorn. They couldn't even figure out how the sheep had kept itself alive. They figured there were some caves there that it must have gone into. Well, uh, that, that poor sheep was in a, a real predicament, uh, in a place where no one could get to it, no one could rescue it. And uh, in some ways, uh, that sheep reminds us of our condition as well. All of us at certain times, whether we admit it or not, need to be rescued. We've gotten ourselves into a predicament. In this case, the sheep had gone uh, there by itself. It was its own fault that it had made its way there. And sometimes we find ourselves making decisions that lead us into predicaments and we're wondering, how am I going to get out of this? And thinking at the same time, it's really my fault that I'm in this position in the first place. One of the great things about the book of Ruth is it reminds us that even if you have gotten yourself into the predicament, God does not abandon his people. And God works even in situations where you may have contributed to the difficulties that you're in. And uh, this little book, which is so beloved by many, tells us the story of God's working in the lives of ordinary people, people trying to live in a fallen world, uh, people who need to be rescued. Now, children, this book, and we're going to talk about this word throughout uh, our study, is about redemption. And uh, one way to think of that is, is like that sheep. That sheep needed to be redeemed, needed to be rescued. And so as we think about this, I want you to listen when we talk about our need for a redeemer. And the beautiful thing about the book of Ruth is that it shows us how God redeems his people. And he doesn't do that in a very impersonal way. He sends someone to us. He sends a redeemer to us who rescues us and who delivers us. And that's the main point we're going to see as we look at this first section of the book, that you and I need a redeemer. We need a redeemer, and the challenge is for us to recognize that and to put our trust in the redeemer that God has sent to rescue us, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now if you children want to draw a picture, you could just draw a picture of the sheep that I've described if you want, or I think I asked you in the outline, you could draw this family that we're going to read about, and who is in the family when the story begins, and who's in the family uh, when we get to the end of the passage we read just a few moments ago. Well, there is an outline in your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along, the first thing we want to notice is that God cares about ordinary people like you and like me. Uh, both commentators and children agree that the book of Ruth is one of the most beautiful and interesting in all of the Bible. It's a very compelling story, and it's very, very simple. There's only four chapters, and there's sort of four scenes, four acts in this little play that occur. Uh, we have this beginning scene, which is in Moab, and then there's going to be a scene in a farmer's field during the harvest, 
and then later at a threshing floor at night, and then finally in the city gate of the city of Bethlehem. And so I know some of you have acted in your school plays. This would be one that would be pretty simple to put on if you were putting on a school play. There wouldn't have to be that many scene changes. And verse 1 tells us that the book happens in the days of the judges. And so uh, if, if you've been with our congregation over the last year, you know something of what that means. The, the time of the judges was a time of moral and spiritual uh, anarchy. In fact, if you look back, uh, just turn your Bibles one page back to the end of the book of Judges, you see how that book ends. And this really, this, this final verse is kind of the theme of the whole book of Judges. And it ends this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And uh, we, we went, when we went through this book, we said that's not actually a good thing uh, when everyone's doing their own thing. Uh, everyone was following their own consciences, which were not informed by the word of God. And in fact, uh, we see these cycles repeated over and over in Judges. The people turn away from God. God sends an oppressor into their lives. Uh, that people cry out for help. God sends a deliverer, one of these judges that we read about, like Gideon or Samson. And the judge comes and delivers the people. And for a while, the people follow God, but then they turn right back to doing their own thing again. And as we went through the book, we saw that it just got, it got worse and worse and worse as we went through. And at the end, we had that final sequence where the Levite and his concubine go off and the concubine is abused and killed, and uh, the Levite cuts her up in pieces and sends her out, and there's a civil war. I mean, that's how far things have degenerated in uh, the nation of Israel. That's, it, it, it comes to a, a, a tragic and terrible end, societal and religious chaos. And this book, the book of Ruth, is set during this time quite a contrast. And uh, one of the things that is really unique about Ruth, and uh, Ted Donnelly, who was an RP pastor who passed away a year ago, has a, has a great sermon series on Ruth. He says, the book of Ruth is striking for its sheer ordinariness. Uh, and he says, you think about it, there's no kings. You come out of the book of Judges when we have these amazing deliverers fighting battles, leading armies, winning against all odds, you have miracles, you have all kinds of things happening, and none of that is going on in the book of Ruth. There's no kings, there's no prophets, uh, there's no major battles, there's very little action at all, really, it's mostly dialogue. And so the contrast could not be uh, starker. And in fact, you have Ruth, um, just very ordinary people doing ordinary things. So you have a family forming, you have people moving away from home. You have death and bereavement. Uh, you have infertility. Uh, you have people looking for work. You have financial hardship. Uh, you have love. You have uh, marriage. Again, you have all these things uh, that are just very, very ordinary. And so in a lot of ways, the book of Ruth is about regular people, people like you, people like me, trying to live their lives. And that's why the book is so uh, relatable and why it is eminently relevant for you and for me. Now, uh, Philip uh, just put a book on my, uh, in the office over there for me, 
written by uh, an RP elder who's retired, who's in the Cambridge church. Uh, it's a little commentary on Ruth called An Island of Grace. And uh, I, ha- I, don't, I, know, I know the man, and he's a, he's, a good, he's a good man, Christopher Wright, and so I'm looking forward to reading this. I have no idea if the commentary is any good or not, but I do know I like the title. Uh, the title describes well what you're seeing in the book of Ruth. We've got absolute chaos going on in the world around, and we do have battles and death and destruction, oppression, enemies, foreign enemies coming in. And in the, in the midst of all of that, God has a showing us here this little island of grace where ordinary people are trying to live their lives, and the Lord is showing something very profound to us. It's an amazing encouragement to us. Yes, God raises up people like David, people like Moses, and others who are, who are giants uh, and do incredible things, but God also cares about ordinary people like you and like me who will never be recorded in history and no one will ever know about us or read about us uh, years after we're gone, and that's totally fine. God still cares, and here's a book uh, to prove that point. Jesus shows this powerfully in his own ministry. In Mark 10, verses 13, 14, and 16, these verses are in your outline, it tells us this, they brought the little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased, and he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. That is such a profound verse. Jesus Christ had time for infants. And that's what the word little children means here, for babies. And that is the one thing in our world, the important people, have no time for at all is for children. Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, had time for children because he cares about regular, ordinary people doing regular, ordinary things just like you and just like me. We need God's redeeming love, and God loves people like us. Thankfully, He cares about ordinary people. But secondly, we see here that ordinary people, like you and me, have a problem that we cannot solve. Uh, Now, commentators disagree on uh, whether we know the author of this book or not. Some argue that uh, maybe Samuel wrote this book, but we really do not know who the author of the book is. What he does, though, is he just begins the story by introducing us to this little family, a father, uh, a mother, and two children. And they live in the town of Bethlehem in Judah. And Bethlehem figures, uh, figures prominently in the book of Judges, toward the end of the book of Judges. So here's something going on in Bethlehem. There's a family here. Now the irony is that the word Bethlehem means the house of bread. And so the text is literally saying there's no bread in the house of bread. So there is a famine. And again, we don't know the details. Some commentators think maybe this is what's described in Judges chapter 6 
uh, when it tells us about the, the uh, Midianites coming in and, uh, and camping in the land, and every time they plant their crops, these guys come in and eat everything. And so that this is the famine that's being spoken of. And this was the crisis in which God raised up uh, the judge Gideon uh, to deliver the people. We don't know that for sure, but we do know that there was tremendous hardship. What we also know is that in these times of hardship where there's national crisis going on, often it's the regular people that suffer the most. And here, so here are regular people who are having trouble uh, finding food because uh, the famine is in the land. And so you have this man named Elimelech. And Elimelech's name literally means, my God is king. Uh, so here's a, 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 a man, presumably from a faithful Jewish family, named my God is king. And he's trying to figure out how he's going to feed his family. So the text tells us uh, that he takes his family to the country of Moab. So he's got to go outside the promised land, across the Jordan River to the east, around by the uh, Dead Sea, uh, to the land of Moab, where apparently uh, there is food over there. And the text tells us that after he goes there, we don't know how long, but the father of the family dies. Elimelech dies, and that leaves uh, his wife Naomi and their two children. Uh, so then the text tells us, well, the two children, they find wives. These two sons marry women from Moab, Orpah and Ruth, and, um, and then they dwell there for about 10 years. But then the two sons die as well. So now we have the mother, Naomi, and she has no husband, and she has no sons. She has no grandchildren. She just has her two Moabite daughters-in-law. And so she's left absolutely desolate. And um, the text doesn't really elaborate on that. It just says what happens, very matter of fact. But we have to kind of fill in the gaps in terms of understanding uh, what's going on in her life. One of the things about Ruth is it's so brief the, the narrator doesn't tell us a lot of things we might like to know, like why, uh, why did the husband die? How did the husband die? Uh, it doesn't explain why or how the sons died. It doesn't explain if this move to Moab was a good idea or a bad idea. It doesn't tell us whether it was a good idea or a bad idea for these young men to marry the women from Moab. There are a ton of things that, that, that are just not commented on at all. We're just told this is what happens. But we are told that the end result is that Naomi is in Moab with no living descendants. And we know for sure that that is an absolute calamity for someone in that day and age. Now, at one level, of course, she is bereaved at having lost her husband and then having lost her sons. It's devastating to lose children. And that would be the case uh, in, the, in those days as it is today. But on top of that, the economic prospects that she's facing are, are terrible, beyond anything that we could imagine in our country here. Um, I put in your outline a cross-reference from James chapter 1, verses 27. And there James tells us that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That one of the key aspects 
of loving God is for caring for the needy. And so who are the needy? In this text, the orphan and the widow. These are the neediest people in society. This woman would not be in a position to provide for herself, as especially as an older woman living in a foreign country. She has no male relatives to care for her. There is no social safety net. There is no uh, welfare system. There is no one who is going to provide for her. She's literally facing personal destruction, starvation, and death uh, in her situation. She, she has very few prospects and very little hope. But in addition to that, she's also facing the, uh, the, the severe likelihood that her family's possession in the promised land is going to be lost forever out of the family. So because of her situation and her destitution, she and her family have moved away from their land, but they would have retained the rights to it. But if she has no way to support herself uh, and no way to farm her land, she's going to lose her land. And that is a big, big issue uh, for the Jews. I put in your outline Leviticus 25, verses 23 to 25. And here God tells the people, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the land of your possession you shall grant redemption of your land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. So that, those are provisions for what's called the year of Jubilee. The land was not supposed to be permanently sold because the idea was the family could always go back to the land and someone in the family would be there to redeem uh, and buy back the land and provide for the family. But Ruth doesn't have that opportunity. It looks like she's away from the land. She has no relative to support her and that the land is going to go out of the family. And you have to understand that in their minds, the land is very much tied to their place with God. Jesus picks this language up in the New Testament. He says in John 14, verses 2 to 3, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. When Jesus talks about, I am preparing a place, he's very much picking up on this idea. God has a place for every one of his people. And that was pictured in the promised land, where the, the land was divided out and every family given borders and, and a specific place in the land. And that's a picture of our eternal dwelling with God and having a place with him in heaven. And so it's a very, very significant thing to lose your place in the land. And then on top of all that, uh, Naomi is also facing the loss of the family name. And again, this is one of these things that is more significant to them than it would be for us. I, I you know you're all well aware of this. My dad had four sons. I am the oldest of four sons. And so when we were growing up, no one thought much about, oh, are we going to keep the Holdeman uh, name alive in this branch of the family. Well, now our, his four sons have produced 11 granddaughters and not a single grandson. 
So yes, it very much looks like, unless there's some surprise news someone has, we're all in our 50s now, uh, that we're not going to have any male uh, descendant. And so just like that, the family name is going out in this particular branch of the family. Now, you know, is that something I'm losing sleep over at night or, 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 you know, just racking myself out about how terrible it is? No, I can tell you it's not. We've got these wonderful girls. We're, we're now getting some men into the family, and we're very excited through marriage. And nobody really talks too much about, oh, the Holdeman name's going out. It doesn't mean that much to us in this day and age. But it's very different in the time of Ruth, because in that day and age, if the family name disappeared, it was like the family disappeared. They did not have a well-developed view of the afterlife. You you realize they wouldn't have had much of the Bible in those days. Uh, Much of the Bible's written after that time. And so what they understood was not the same as what we understand. And so very, uh, very clearly, you lose the family name, it's almost like that little segment of the family is gone. And this is so important that the law actually makes accommodations for this. So I put in your outline Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 6. And there we see what, what, when we read this, this just sounds bizarre to us. Uh, But it says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. See, that's how important this was, that it was the brother-in-law's obligation uh, to raise up children for his dead brother. And they would, those children would have that dead brother's name and the name would live on and the branch of the family would live on. So this, all of this is wrapped together in what Naomi is facing. Uh, Lawson Younger commenting on this says, the family of Elimelech teeters on annihilation. When a family died out physically, it ceased to exist metaphysically. And that's in the thinking of the people. So this is a tragedy in the making. Uh, Naomi has no livelihood, no land, no heir, and the entire family is facing extinction. So she has a problem she cannot solve. She needs someone from outside the situation to come and to deliver her, but she cannot solve the problem. And in many, many ways, right, she points us to ourselves. She points you to how your life is. You have problems you cannot solve. Now, some of those Uh, You you may be experiencing right now. We have people dealing with uh, health problems that they cannot solve. We have people dealing with aging problems, which are not going to go away. We have people dealing with relationship problems. We have people dealing with uh, financial or job problems. And, And so at times in our life, we face problems we cannot solve, and, and we can relate to this situation. But even if you don't see yourself as facing any problems like that right now, there is a problem which every one of us faces, and that is the fact that we are going to die, we are going to stand before God, and we are going to face judgment. 
And there's not one of us who can stand before God in our own righteousness and pass that test. The Lord is perfectly righteous, and the scripture says there is not one who is righteous, no, not one. And that's a problem because that means you and I cannot be in God's presence. We cannot live with God forever in our own righteousness, which we lack. And so we in many ways are just like Naomi here, facing obstacles that we cannot solve, no hope, no future, no resources. That's her situation, and that's our situation too, if we think about our spiritual situation before God. But thirdly, the text reminds us that God's Redeemer is the only one who can rescue you from the dilemma that we are in. So Naomi needs a person to rescue her, to provide for her, to buy back the land, to raise up sons. Again, she doesn't need a program. Uh, she doesn't need some theory. Uh, she doesn't need some abstract theology or some, some uh, philosophy. She needs a person. And, uh, and that's what this story is about. It's, it's about this person that God uses and how God delivers. It's not the story of two resourceful widows who pool their resources and defy all odds to survive and make it work. Uh, you could read it that way. Some people do read it that way. Sometimes the children's books read it that way. Look at what these two perky uh, widows did when they, uh, when they stuck together and stuck it out. That's not what the story is about. In fact, children, just testing you here, there's only three main characters in the book. All right, now I've already given away two of them, but who are the three main characters in the book? G give me one. Okay, excellent, Ruth. The book is named for Ruth. So Ruth is one of them, yes? Okay, Boaz, and that's one we haven't even heard of yet. So that's the second one. And yeah, go ahead. Naomi. All right, so that's it. Just those three people. Adam, you had that? All right, good. Um, so that's it. And, uh, and we could think that, yeah, this is, this is telling us this little story about how these three people get together and then they solve all the problems. What, what's really fascinating is that it's clear that the real mover and shaker in the book is, is hardly ever mentioned. It's God. Um, God doesn't do anything explicitly in the book. God doesn't say anything. Now, people refer to God in the book and they, they talk about God, but God isn't isn't shown to be actually involved at all directly when you read the book but he's the main character and it's what's God what is what is God doing to bring this all together and to bring about the deliverance of these people who are so needy in fact it's 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 quite definitely not about how Naomi solves her own problems in fact we could say that Naomi has done nothing but contribute to her problems. So Naomi, I assume at some level, is involved in this decision to go to Moab. So I said the, the author doesn't tell us whether that's good or bad. We have to look to the rest of Scripture. Uh, this is called the analogy of faith, that Scripture helps us interpret other Scripture. And, and we can tell that the decision to leave the promised land and to go to Moab in order to avoid the famine was not 
a good decision. Now, this is helpful from our Sunday school class earlier. We're not saying it's a bad decision because Elimelech died, right? That's the temptation is, oh, well, we can interpret providence because if bad things happen, oops, you did it wrong. And that's not what we're saying. The reason we know it's a bad decision is because the scripture tells us that. The people in Moab worshipped a god called Chemosh, who, and they practiced child sacrifice. It was a demon god. Listen to what Deuteronomy 23 says about the Moabites. Uh, there we find in verses 3 to 6, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor and Aram, Naharim, to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. That's the, it's pretty clear that Moab was not a place to go. Moab, these are the descendants of Lot's incestuous relationship uh, with his daughter. And uh, they were enemies of the Jewish people. So they weren't to go there. And if, you're fo- if you were following along in the book of, of Judges, uh, Eglon, who was one of the first oppressors we read about in Judges, was from Moab, oppressing and abusing the people. And we might say, well, how can we be sure that Naomi is complicit in this decision to go to Moab? Well, we know for sure that 10 years after Elimelech died, she was still there. Uh, So uh, at at some level, she is uh, complicit in this move to Moab. The other thing that happens, and, and we would assume Naomi is supportive of it, is her sons marrying women from Moab. Again, uh, we don't have to look at the fact that the sons died. Uh, That isn't why we know that's wrong. We know the Bible tells them uh, not to intermarry. I mean, the passage I just read says that a descendant of uh, Moab down to 10 generations can't go into the temple. Uh, So it seems pretty clear uh, that uh, marrying somebody and producing descendants of Moab is not what the Lord wants them to do. They are not to intermarry with the pagans, and yet they do that. And we don't know the reasons why. Uh, perhaps a desire for, uh, for uh, grandchildren in the next generation. And, uh, and perhaps that's Naomi's motivation in uh, allowing her sons to marry uh, non-Jews, non-servants of God. And so in many ways, uh, Naomi is like uh, our little lonely sheep, uh, right? She has created many of these problems for herself by taking herself out of the promised land and having her children uh, marry outside the covenant community. And the whole situation has now gotten to where it's obvious that it's hopeless and she cannot fix her situation. And this is where each and every one of us needs to get Uh, found it really helpful in in the the Sunday school, the adult Sunday school class, talking about Christians in the Roman Empire. And um, one of the things that Colin was talking about this morning is how um, this idea that if we just do the right things, 
right, then the gods will be favorable to us. It's all a matter of being, I mean, they had to be meticulous, but if you do the right things, if you figure out the program, then you will be blessed. And that's so easy to think that way, even in your Christian life, that always is coming in. Uh, If I pray uh, the right way, if I pray enough, if I read the Bible enough, if I do this or if I do that, then God will be pleased with me. Then God will bless me. It's always about how can I do the things that, uh, that God wants me to do that will make him happy. How can I really, what we're saying is manipulate God to get what I want. And that's not biblical Christianity. The Bible is, you and I are Naomi. We have royally messed up. We're in a bad place. We have no prospects. We have no hope. We have no future. And if we're going to get out of this situation, God is going to have to do something. God is going to have to come in from the outside of the situation and save us. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to understand God saves his lost people. He does that by sending the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue us. He is the great redeemer. He is the one who comes from outside, comes into our situation, and he's the one who delivers us by suffering in our place. Now, now let me make it clear. I'm not in any way saying that if you're going through difficult times now, it's because you made bad decisions, right? That's uh, the book of Job tells us that's not the case. Uh, You may have made bad decisions, you may not have made bad decisions, but hardships in your life come in under the sovereignty of God, and he does that oftentimes to show you he's your only hope. He's the only one that can solve your problem. So God's Redeemer is the only one who can rescue you. So finally then, fourthly, you need to recognize your need for God's Redeemer And you need to trust the one that he has sent to rescue you. And the little passage we read ends with a glimmer of hope. uh, Because the text says, I've turned my page. The text says in verse 6 that she heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. And that's a very significant word in the Bible. It's the word from which we get episcopal or or a bishop, episcopalian, the visitation of the Lord. God visited his people. It's the beginning of hope in this situation that God hasn't turned his back on his people. He's not abandoned Naomi even though she's gone away from him The Lord has visited his people. When Zacharias was prophesying about the coming of Mary's child in the New Testament, he uses this same word, Luke 1, verse 68. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Speaking of the Lord Jesus coming to the people, God visiting his people to deliver them. That's how he visits us, through Christ. And in his providence, Naomi here is going to return to the land. She's going to turn away from what she's done, and she's going to seek God's help. And it's really helpful for us to remember that there is always a way back. 
The Lord provides a way back for his people. And some commentators think that she is, in a sense, an Old Testament version of the prodigal son. Someone who goes away, who is brought very low, and then comes to her senses and comes back to the Lord. That's the grace of our God. Sinclair Ferguson describes it this way. He says, in this way, God is saying to us, this is the kind of God I am. This is the kind of thing I do. And that is precisely what you may expect me to do in your lives too. Trust me, I know exactly what I am doing. And that's the call for you and for me this morning. Do we know that we need a redeemer? That's the first step. Do you know that you need a redeemer? You have a problem with sin that separates you from God, and only Jesus Christ can rescue you. And if you know that then, are you trusting in the redeemer that God has sent to rescue you? In the case of our little lost sheep, the international recognition that this sheep was lost motivated five farmers uh, to crawl down there and carry the sheep out. And so that sheep is living out her days on a farm in the north of England now. But it didn't happen because the sheep figured anything out. It happened because someone went to her and provided what was needed. And they said when they sheared off the wool, it was about 20 pounds just of wool weighing her down. Now I said before that the, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth comes right after Proverbs, which is really interesting because Proverbs ends with chapter 31 and the wise woman. And so you can understand why you would do that. But you can also understand why it fits between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. Because Judges is showing us again and again, you need a righteous king. You need a righteous king to fight for you, but you need a righteous king to lead you. And the book of Samuel describes who that king is, right? That's, that's the story of David. Well, first we try Saul, we do it a human way, and then God provides David the first king. So in between judges and this king coming is this little transition. And I think one of the reasons this is here, we're going to find out later in the book, it shows us where David comes from, but it also shows us the kind of king we need. Because in Judges, we're looking for someone to fight for us, to deliver us, to lead us in righteousness. And in Samuel, we get this king, David. But in Ruth, we learn that the king is compassionate, and cares for the needy and the downtrodden and the people with no hope in this world. 
And that's the kind of redeemer we have. One who loves outcasts. One who was made an outcast for his people. We read earlier, right? If you're from Moab, you can't go into the temple down to the 10th generation. Jesus allowed himself to become an outcast, to save outcasts. He suffered as one who was put outside the camp, as we said, who had the wrath of God placed upon him so that people like us, people like us, could have a righteous king to lead us and to save us. And so that's the message of this book, and that's the hope that we'll be looking at more and more. You and I need a redeemer, and that redeemer has come in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to recognize our need. We need to trust him and live in fellowship with him every day. No matter who you are or what your background is, your redeemer has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and we'll ask him to increase our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in our lostness, uh, you have come to us. You haven't waited for us to figure things out and to make ourselves right or to work our way out of the situation. You have come to us. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for this uh, beautiful little book of the Bible, uh, which shows us the uh, great work of the Redeemer and his compassion, especially for the needy and the outcast and the lowly. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you love ordinary people. You love uh, lost people. And we confess, Lord, that we are all lost apart from you. Uh, some of us like to think that we have our act together and that uh, we really don't need a redeemer, that we're doing pretty well on our own. Lord, would you please show us, just like you showed Naomi, where we are if left to ourselves. And please also, Lord, help us to see your wonderful, redeeming love for those who need to be rescued, that you came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to recognize our need and to turn to our Lord and to trust in him as the great king who was compassionate and who loved the outcast. We thank you for our Lord, and we pray you would increase our faith even in this coming week, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's uh, then respond to the Lord by singing now from Psalm 72b. And I chose this because it's, it's a psalm about the king. And so you, you, you hear the king and how the, uh, the, the peoples will bow before him and his enemies will bow before him. And then you see in uh, stanza 7, he'll show the poor his sympathy and he will save the needy's life from fraud and force. He'll set them free. His, their blood is precious in his sight. So he's a great king, and yet he cares about the needy, he cares about the lowly, and he delivers us. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand and we'll sing.